Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Climate on Air, discussing the future of EU climate policy. In this podcast, we invite experts to talk about what transformative EU climate policy could look like in the coming decades if we want to reach climate neutrality. I'm Aaron Best, Senior Fellow at Ecologic Institute in Berlin. And I'm Bradley Martzagala from the University of Eastern Finland's Center for Climate Change, Energy and Environmental Law. Together, we welcome you to our very first episode of what transformative policy actually means. How can we define transformation and why incremental change is simply not enough? To find answers to these questions, we've invited two experts, Anushka Hilke, who is a program director at Institute for Climate Economics in Paris, and Benjamin Gerlach, an environmental economist and head of economics and policy assessment at Ecologic Institute. Benjamin and Anushka currently collaborate on the 4i Traction Project. We'll put a link to that material with the podcast link. Benjamin, Anushka, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Aaron. Hello, Bradley. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Hi, Bradley. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, before we dive in, I'd like to ask you, Benjamin, how optimistic are you for climate policy globally and on the EU level? So what are the things that give you hope? In climate policy, we are looking at a mixed picture. So on the whole... It's clear that we're not doing nearly enough to limit global overheating, but there are a few hopeful elements. And as one of them, I would mention that at this point in time, we actually see much more clearly what needs to be done and how this transformation to climate neutrality could look like. To make that a bit more concrete, a few things that are very clear at this stage is that this transformation to climate neutrality involves a transformation from fossil to renewable sources of energy. It involves using energy much more efficiently. It involves electrifying many of the ways how we use energy in our homes or to get around. And it involves storing surplus electricity in batteries, but also chemically in in the form of green hydrogen. And so these things basically are now becoming more and more clear what it takes and also how to get there. And me speaking as an economist, one other particularly hopeful element is that the cost of many key technologies have been coming down uh, quite a lot over the previous years. And that trend continues. And so it holds for things like PV modules, but also wind turbines for batteries, for heat pumps, for electrolyzers that produce green hydrogen. For all these things, we're on a learning curve and costs continue to come down. And Anushka, what about you? I agree to the mixed picture that was drawn up by Benjamin. Progress so far has been way too slow and too incremental. So that means that we've taken small steps. We've focused on easy wins that do not require important changes. And we're too much lost in detail. And we're missing a coherent overall approach. But what gives me hope is that I see discussions moving very quickly. Ideas that have been rejected as unthinkable a few years ago are now being seriously discussed For example, the concept of transition planning is something that we are discussing a lot today. And that's simply because it includes the concept of planning. This is called shifting the overtone window. It means that really the discussions are taking a whole new directions and are opening up new ways of finding solutions. So that gives me hope. Thanks for that overview. I agree that we can see some of these inclinations in the electrification and shifts away from fossil fuels. And you've both have spoken already about the need to pick up the pace of that change and the scale of that. And we look forward to speaking with you today about what transformation really will look like. Indeed, our word of the day really is transformation. So let's get into it. What does transformative policy really mean? 
and how can we define it? And likewise, how is that actually different to current climate policy? In the project, it was one of the first tasks we had set ourselves to define our terminology. And we ended up borrowing a definition from an academic colleague from Jan Faisi that distinguishes three key dimensions, which is that transformative policy goes deeper, it is broader, and it has to happen quicker than policy as usual. And to illustrate these three dimensions entail, first, the depth of the transformation that relates to the fact that transformative change will disrupt existing practices and it will very often involve a fundamentally different approach to how the economy is run and how the economy is organized. For instance, reconfiguring value chains or finding completely different ways to address human needs, such as food or mobility. As for the breadth, that relates to the fact that transformative change happens in parallel in many different subsystems. And subsystems here can refer to the fact that we have changes of lifestyles, of social practices, of technologies, and of infrastructure. And all these things evolve in parallel, but it also can relate to different economic sectors. So we don't only have an energy transition, but we also need at the same time to manage a transition of all the sectors that use energy, industry, mobility, building stock, food, and agriculture. The third dimension relates to the speed of change. And here the observation is that transformative change happens much quicker than one would normally see these change processes play out under normal circumstances. And to give you an illustration of that, the European Union took about 30 years to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by a bit over a third between 1990 and 2020. So that gets us to it reduction of 33%. Now, by the end of this current decade, we want to be at least 55% reduction. So the next 20% of reduction basically happen in this decade. And afterwards, in the 2030s and 2040s, we have to continue at the same pace. So how can we get beyond a system that is built around fossil energy and do away with fossil sources and reconfigure the entire energy system, but also the rest of the economy to a future beyond fossil energy carriers? And Anushka? Maybe let me add another important aspect, which is the overall coherence of the policy system as a whole. I think this is an area where we still need much improvement with regard to the current policy design, which gives many contradicting policy signals at the moment. Just one example, which is very well known example, are the subsidies for different kinds of fossil fuel based activities that still remain and that contradict the overall policy goals and that are also contradictory with increasing subsidies for low-carbon activities. So we're still trying to change things here and there, ensuring that we have overall coherence in the policy system. That is definitely something where we need to work more on. So Benjamin, Anushka brings up this topic of coordination, coherence in policy. What does transformative policy need to look like? to be able to reach climate neutrality by 2050. Some of the work that we've been doing in the Four Attraction Project was to try and define some hallmarks for how can we describe transformative climate policy and what it needs to achieve. And we ended up with four hallmarks that are kind of key qualities to get us to climate neutrality. And the first one of them being that we need to think backward from the end. So 27 years from now, we want to be climate neutral and then think backward in what does it mean, what needs to happen until then and what kind of change process do we need to initiate. The second one was that we need to find solutions to overcome the existing past dependencies and lock-in effects. There's many factors that basically lock us onto the fossil intensive technological and economic system that we've built up in the past. 
and through both a mix of innovation policies, but also exnovation, so the targeted phase out of fossil-based technologies, we need to work actively to overcome these inbuilt path dependencies. The third hallmark we described was to develop institutions that are capable of delivering transformative change. So that's the question of how to govern this transformation process and how to do this in a participatory and inclusive way that provides, on the one hand, clear direction to citizens, to consumers, to investors, but on the other hand, also takes their concerns on board and makes sure that everybody is broadly aligned with the objectives in the process. And the fourth one was to foster integration across sectors and then also embedding technical changes in a broader political and socioeconomic process. And so that revolves to challenges such as keeping the change process aligned both across different sectors, but of course also different levels of governance from the European level down to the local level. So let me try and make this a little bit more concrete, focusing perhaps on the first example, which is to, to think backward from the end. The entire transformation process is uncertain, and that makes it so difficult to find a, a policy guidance for it, because nobody has that crystal ball and can tell us exactly what Europe will look like in 2050. But at the same time, some things are more uncertain than others. And so there are certain elements that are pretty certain at this stage and that we can start working towards, and others are fundamentally less certain. For instance, electrification and expansion of solar and wind electricity, but also new business models around storage and flexibility. When we have all that electricity, we can use it to electrify end users, such as heating or, or mobility, but also energy efficiency and others, where we can start right away to create the conditions so that they can move. Under any scenario of the future, these will be part of the solution. And there is very little risk to be misinvest if we go into this direction. Then there are certain other elements which are likely, but still much more uncertain. In this category, you'd have things like the future of green hydrogen, and it will be part of the solution, but where exactly we will use it is an open question. Then there's a few points where we have the known unknowns, where the race is still fundamentally open. And so this revolves around, for instance, the future of meat or the diets and how we feed ourselves, but also things like long distance aviation, if that runs with synthetic fuels from hydrogen or biofuels or batteries, or if we perhaps just find ways to travel less in the long distance, change lifestyles and consumption habits. However, one thing to bring this together is that under any circumstance, uncertainty should not be an excuse for inaction, because for many of these change processes, we are looking at quite long planning horizons. And Nushka, in your view, what are some of the important design aspects of transformative policy? We need to push policymaking to ensure more overall coherence. And we need to overcome our tendency to think in silos. Today, most of us who work on climate think in sectors and few are able to actually look beyond their field of expertise and think in an integrated way. Let me share an anecdote. Um, so in earlier projects, we've tried to bring together experts on uh, meteorology and financial experts to develop ideas on how financial institutions can better manage financial risks related to climate change. However, it was as if they speak different languages, and it really took us a lot of time to develop common understanding to be able to work together to develop solutions. So there is still a lot of progress that we need to make. And so similar to that, in order to overcome that thinking in silos for our project, we decided to structure it around different cross-cutting issues that we thought were fundamental to successfully manage the transition. So we came up with these four key aspects. 
And we structured the project around innovation, investment and finance, infrastructure, and integration of solution across sectors. So we decided to really make this a focal point of our project. Let me maybe say a few words of why we thought these four aspects were so important. Fostering breakthrough innovation is definitely needed to help get more clarity with regard to those solutions that Benjamin spoke about, where we haven't yet a sufficiently clear vision of how these are supposed to work. The second aspect is shifting investment and finance. As we know, this transformation will cost money. However, there's absolutely no shortage of money if we look beyond public funding. It's only a question of better guiding the available money to finance the solutions that we need, to stop financing the activities that we have identified as harmful, and instead to help companies shift their business model and activities from high emission activities to low carbon solutions. The third aspect is about rolling out infrastructure for a low carbon and resilient economy. Infrastructure is not technology neutral. That means You need to decide on which are the technologies, solutions that you want to put in place and then build the infrastructure that comes with that technology. It therefore plays a key role in overcoming carbon lock-in. Infrastructure is long-lived and infrastructure choices strongly influence which technologies will become economically viable. That is why we chose it as one of the key aspects. And the fourth aspect is the question of looking at integrated solutions across sectors. As we've already discussed, this is really one of the key areas where we need improvements. Twenty fifty is the benchmark year for climate neutrality, but twenty fifty is still some years away. Will transformative policies need to look differently in the coming decades? And if so, how? In the project, we are not developing any kind of prescriptive set of policies. Instead, we have been thinking about um, four different, so to say, families of policies that follow different theories of economic thinking. You have the market liberal theory, you have green industrial policy, which we also call the man on the moon theory, where you have a clear policy goal that you're following, a clear industrial policy, then a directed transition, which makes much more use of standards and regulation. And last but not least, a degrowth and sufficiency theory. So we call these four policy avenues, and uh, all of them can lead to transformative outcomes under certain conditions. Common to all of them is an element of planning over time, of how different policy measures evolve over time. And Also, the use of announcement effects in order to ensure predictability for citizens, for companies, and also for investors. To give you an example, it doesn't really matter if in your policy avenue, your main focus is on carbon pricing and how the price of carbon will develop over time, or if you're rather planning to use standards and clear phase out dates. In both policy avenues, you will have to give a clear vision of when these policies will evolve and how. So you need to give citizens, companies, and investors a clear vision of when you are planning to increase the carbon price or when you are planning to ban a certain technology. That is very important to know that we need to decide now how our policy mix is going to develop over the future 
as you say, 2030, 2040, and so on, in order to give a clear idea to everyone on where we're going. This is certainly a break from our current status quo with the policy avenues and announcement effects. Where do you see possible risks or barriers to this unique approach? There's sort of different levels as to where you can try and position this. On the one hand, it's the political challenge of what can these policy avenues translate into possible futures for EU climate policy. And what we found in doing the research was that to different degrees, they all have an anchor in the current EU climate policy framework. So it's a little bit a matter of scaling up the different elements in the world of EU climate policy. They're not equally likely, though, to happen. There is a certain predisposition, for instance, baked into EU climate policy on the use of market-based instruments, carbon pricing, which just has been kind of the workhorse of climate policy for the last almost two decades at the European level. And so much political capital has been invested and it will continue to be a strong element of the policy mix. But then there's also a challenge about the four I dimensions, the innovation, investment, infrastructure, and integration aspects that we're looking at in the project. and that they work out quite different or that they suggest very different types of modes of governance. Anushka mentions some of the commonalities of the four eyes in that they all require a certain element of guidance and long-term orientation, the announcement effect that she was referring to. At the same time, of course, they have different predispositions in that, for instance, innovation is fundamentally still a process of searching for unknown solutions, requires a certain openness, a certain flexibility to organize a competition of the best processes and then select the best ones that are there. Whereas infrastructure, if you want, is kind of the opposite. So you have to make a choice at some point what type of infrastructure you're building. And once you start building it, then it determines the range of feasible outcomes. And there's only limited amounts where you can have a competition between different types of infrastructure or building infrastructure in such a way that it can be used for different purposes. That's in practice quite limited. So at the end of the day, it's one of the fields where you need to decide for one option and then go for it. And so reconciling these different elements, the fundamental openness, but also the need for certainty in planning is a technical challenge, but is very much a political challenge because behind that, you would find quite different political philosophies, what the ideal approach and what the ideal role of policymaking should be. Anushka, you've spoken about innovation, investment, infrastructure, integration, and Benjamin has talked about some of the unique challenges to each of those areas. Are there also sort of common challenges that these areas share? Yes, indeed. And I think um, all of these elements have a strong link. That is why governance aspects also play an important role in our project. So, for example, when it comes to infrastructure, Ensuring that the right infrastructure is in place at the right time requires strategic long-term planning and effective governance structures. So these need to take into account cost effectiveness, and we talked about that, but also interdependency with other developments and uncertainties in future demand or supply of energy, as well as the long lead times of infrastructure planning and deployment. Or if we talk about integration, the systematic integration of climate policy objectives across different sectors. So integration in the sense of mainstreaming climate policy objectives relates to the need to systematically integrate climate considerations into different policies across various sectors and at multiple levels of governance. So, for example, at the EU level, but also at national level and at local level. 
And integration of different policies towards a holistic vision is one of the rationales for the European Green Deal. Yes. So let's get into that specific EU policy context. We've spoken about general challenges so far that I think would probably be universal to any country or region pursuing this level of change. The EU has put out Fit for 55 package. And as most listeners to this podcast would probably already know, that's the package of policy proposals to update the EU laws in line with the 2050 target. The name itself comes from the 2030 target to reduce net greenhouse gas emissions by 55% below 1990 levels. So it includes a wide range of policy actions across many sectors of the economy. Let's take that into now the transformation context for you're looking beyond that time frame of 2030. How can the EU transform its economy to become Paris aligned? What are the implications for EU policy? Benjamin? It's right that we are living in a very interesting time in European climate policy, and we're seeing change at a speed that we haven't seen in a while. There is the European Green Deal that Anushka mentioned, which is kind of the overarching framework. There is the, the EU climate law, and there is the Fit for 55 package, which is kind of the concrete implementation that you, that you summarized. And with these steps, the EU has plotted its course towards climate neutrality in, in broad terms in terms of the emission targets, but also in terms of concrete policies. And these two need to go together because an emission target without the policy instruments to support it is just a wish and doesn't necessarily get you anywhere. So that's why the Fit for 55 package is so important because it should undermine that, that strategy with concrete instruments. If you look at the actual implementation of EU climate policy, you also find certain transformative elements in the EU climate policy architecture. For instance, if you take the EU emissions trading system, where emissions will be coming down at a rate of 5% per, or 4% per year, and if you extrapolate that all the way to the future, you find that at some point in the late 2030s, the emissions will actually reach zero in the EU emissions trading system. And that means long before that already, so in the 2030s, early 2030s, that will put an end to coal combustion pretty much effectively an end to coal combustion in the EU, simply because at that point in time, it would become far too expensive to burn coal for producing electricity. But even if we sum up all these policies and targets, and they have become more ambitious, but is it enough? Is the EU climate policy really then Paris aligned? Is it in line with the trajectory that gets us to 1.5 degrees? And for this one, the colleagues at Climate Analytics actually have looked into this and have looked into some scenarios. To find some details, I'll refer you to policy briefs that we've put up on the 4 attraction homepage. But the brief message is that they conclude that more ambition is needed, but it's also feasible. And so according to their analysis, the EU actually to be in line with a 1.5 degree compatible pathway, it would need to reduce its emissions by 63 to 68% by the end of this decade. And this is relative to 1990. So compared to the current goal of 55% reduction, we're talking about 63 to 68% reduction. They also found in their scenario assessment that technically it is feasible to get to this point. And what it takes to scaling up and accelerating change processes in their scenario analysis, they would see that the coal combustion for power generation would actually be phased out by 2030 and fossil gas would follow somewhere between the end of the 2020s and the early 2040s, depending on the, the different countries. And then that is kind of the backbone for widespread electrification, which is a central component of their scenarios. But the other interesting thing is that that electrification in itself actually also massively reduces the, the final energy demand, simply because 
doing things with electricity is so much more efficient than using fossil fuels. And so when you drive a car, then 60 to 70% of the energy that is in your tank basically doesn't reach the wheel, but it's just emitted in the form of heat to the environment. So two-thirds of the energy is just gone like that. And with an electric car, obviously that share is much smaller. And so about 80 to 90% of your the energy consumed is useful energy that accelerates the car. And so in that way, similar for heat pumps and other technologies, electricity just means using energy much more efficiently and thereby electrification also allows to really reduce the final energy demand. Despite the challenges just mentioned, it's positive to know that the transformation is feasible. Now switching gears from EU climate policy to the EU's governance framework, is it fit for purpose? I guess many would agree that we still need to change a few things. Let me give you a few areas that we are working on and some of which we actually have already mentioned before. Long-term visibility of the path towards net zero emissions is obviously uh, a key issue. And the discussions are very much focused still on the short to medium term. For example, we talk about fit for 55, but that's very different than fit for net zero. So we'll need to develop mechanisms that allow us to extend our vision and really better integrate that planning back from the end element. We also talked a lot already about coherence and that we need governance mechanisms to ensure overall policy coherence across all policy areas. And these still need to be developed. Another important aspect is monitoring and evaluation, which may not sound very exciting, but improving on monitoring and evaluation will help us to stop navigating with our eyes shut. For example, we are not tracking climate-related investment flows yet on European level, even though today's investment flows are telling us a lot about how the economy will look like in the future. It's not only about what kind of cars we are buying today, but also about if we are investing today, for example, in a public transport network that will allow citizens to use less individual passenger cars in the future. So tracking investment flows helps us better understand if we're on the right track or not, and where we need to adjust quickly. Benjamin, Anushka's brought up the importance of policy coherence, and um, you've also talked about uncertainty and uncertainty not being an excuse for inaction. And so far, you've talked about these long-term timeframes, but I think already today we're seeing exactly those dynamics. We live in turbulent times now where policymakers need to act fast. We've recently been through the COVID pandemic. Now there's an ongoing war in the Ukraine, the resulting energy crisis as well. Can you tell us how has this current war impacted EU policymaking? Have we been thrown back in our timeframe by that? Or has it provided opportunities for faster decarbonization? How do you see that? Yeah, it's a complex discussion and we haven't seen the end of it yet. It's had a profound impact on many different levels. So perhaps one way to look at this is through the lens of the famous energy triangle or the famous triangle of energy policy goals. There should be a balance between the security of supply on the one hand, then the affordability of energy and related to the competitiveness, but also the protection of the environment. And in some respects, you could say that with the war, the aspect of security of supply and of affordability has received much greater weight. It's you know, just been moved to the forefront. But I think it's also become clear that what the downside of a fossil-based energy system is, which is 
it's not only that it's bad for the environment and for the for the climate, but it also is a risky gamble in terms of the security of energy supply. And it's also, I mean, it's only affordable and cheap as long as you've got a benevolent supplier that is willing to supply you with cheap and abundant oil and gas. But if that stops, we're in trouble. And so that's kind of on the negative side. On the positive side, the last month has also been, if you want a forceful reminder that now, perhaps for the first time ever, we actually have a technology that is able to reconcile all these three objectives. And so because renewable technologies and also the whole sort of technology framework around them has become so relatively cheap, we're now at a point in time where we can achieve all these three goals simultaneously through renewables, but also, of course, through greater energy efficiency. And so in a way, you could argue that with Russia's attack on Ukraine and the attempt to weaponize the European dependence on fossil fuels from Russia, that that actually has accelerated the fossil fuel endgame to quite some degree. And Europe's move away from fossil energies has been, if anything, accelerated. Of course, it's not that all is well. There are many challenges. For instance, we are seeing new investment into fossil infrastructure. We would have hoped that that is becoming a thing of the past and should not have a place really in this transformation. We need the investment we can mobilize to, to for low carbon solutions, but certainly not for new fossil infrastructure or else create tomorrow's stranded assets in the process. The war and the response to it has also, of course, drawn political attention away from climate policy and in some ways has played much more political emphasis on issues of affordability and social acceptance. And the situation brings with it some new geopolitical rivalries and obviously not only Russia, but also with China and other players but if the question was, you know, have we been thrown back at this? I would say not really. You know, with all the turmoil that the, that the war has brought, the EU has remained relatively steadfast in its commitment and has moved ahead with the 55 package. If the European policymakers had wanted to scale back and to walk back from their targets and their ambitions, that war would have offered them the perfect opportunity to do so. But they did not and rather moved on. And Anushka, what would you say the EU can learn from non-EU countries on its path to climate neutrality? I guess there is a tendency to believe that in the EU we're the global frontrunners and that others should learn from us. However, the situation is clearly not as black and white. And as we have started searching within the project, we found many interesting examples of policy successes outside of the EU. On top, the scope of the transformation and the speed which it needs to happen does not leave much room for learning from our own mistakes only. Instead, the EU and its member states should learn from good practices implemented in other countries and identify aspects that resulted in the policy successes and see if these aspects can be implemented in Europe as well. So we've looked in detail at 18 good practices from non-EU countries that could help the EU and its member states to close policy implementation gaps in areas where we've observed developments that are not in line what would be required to achieve our net zero goals and where those countries did much better than the EU. Examples include, for example, fossil fuel heating phase out in Norway or in Canada, but also ways to push electricity storage that were tested in the US federal state of California or in South Korea. But it also includes policies to push for the decentralization of the electricity sector in Australia, which is not usually seen as a climate frontrunner. So to cut things short, I think it's really interesting to get inspired by other countries and make sure that we mutually learn from each other. 
Thank you, Benjamin Anushka, for joining us today and taking time to talk with us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss with you. So, Aaron, let's wrap up. My main takeaways from today's conversation are that transformative change requires drastic dismantling of current systems, not only optimizing the current ones with incremental steps. My other big takeaway was that innovation, infrastructure, investment, and integration are all hallmarks in which the ideology really needs to move towards a comprehensive and cross-sectoral approach rather than so many silos doing their own thing with their own goals and aims and challenges. What about you? Nishka said right now we're somewhere between incremental and transformative. And today's discussion and interview really helped me better understand the nature, I think, of transformational policy that Benjamin mentioned that transformative policy can be characterized by having depth and breadth and speed all at the same time. And that's kind of what distinguishes it from that incremental aspect. The other thing that Anushka said that I found really interesting was about infrastructure. And she said that infrastructure is not technology neutral. And that is something really important to keep in mind as we think about these long-term pathways like Anushka and Benjamin are doing in their work, thinking about creating the kinds of platforms that enable tomorrow's climate neutral economy. Absolutely. And it really goes to show that climate policy is so much broader than how we consider it in most political concepts today. And indeed, the conversation really pointed out how many political challenges there are to overcome in order to make this transformative change uh, a reality. Yeah. And we've just started our journey in this podcast, Bradley, and I look forward to speaking with you about our next topic. Looking forward to it. Our next conversation will be on the topic of innovation and its role within the EU's transition. Our experts on the show will be Brendan Moore from Freie University Brussels and Ham Renks from Wageningen University. So keep an eye out for our next episode. Be sure to subscribe to our Climate on Air, discussing the future of EU climate policy podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. Subscribe, review, and thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the 4i Traction Project, financed by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program. For more information, please visit 4i-traction.eu.